I would invite you to open your Bible this morning to the book of Luke, chapter 22 this morning. Luke chapter 22, where we will continue to think about the song we just sang. Hallelujah, what a Savior. What a Savior our Christ is, who came and lived the life we should have lived. But because we didn't, He died the death we deserve to die. And He has graciously provided for us a symbol for us to continually come and remember the greatness of our Savior. And we see that in the Lord's table, which we'll be partaking of this morning. So for our focus, we'll be in Luke chapter 22 this morning. And, you know, the Lord's Supper is one of those things that it, it quickly comes and goes, you know, here at the first of the month. Now we've, we, we, we focus upon, we, this is when we come to the Lord's table, and, and it can almost become routine. It's scheduled, we get through the sermon, we come down front, we distribute the elements, we partake, we, we uh, read some scripture, we pray, we eat, we distribute the, uh, the other element, we read some scripture, we pray, we drink, we sing a song, we dismiss. And it can easily become one of those things that loses the intention of what our king established it to be and to do. You know, I think back to when I was a kid, and maybe some of our young people even here this morning, when, as you observe your parents and the adults of the church partaking of the Lord's Supper, uh, it may be one of those things that doesn't make much sense to you. And I'd be willing to bet it may be something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to some of our adults either. There may be things about it that we just don't understand. I mean, we've got the little piece of bread, and, and we all know this is my body, do this in remembrance of me, but what does that mean? And the cup of really dark grape juice that looks like blood. Um, drink, this is my blood. I got that, but what does it mean? Even as a pastor who has now administered the Lord's Supper probably some 150 times now in my ministerial life. I've partaken of it probably several hundred times, and as I look around the room, no doubt you yourself have probably taken it a couple hundred times yourself. I wonder if we really benefit from what it was intended to be. Well, this morning, I hope to at least address some of those things. We wouldn't have time to say in the fullness of what the Lord's Supper is, all that it's intended to be, but I do think this morning it's a great opportunity for us to, to focus upon what was it Christ was doing in that upper room when he instituted the Lord's Supper, which we'll be partaking of here in just a few moments. Recently, my mind and heart have been stirred with regard to the Lord's Supper as I I enjoy reading, I enjoy reading old dead guys, and sometimes I find that they're not more spiritual than us, I'm not saying that at all, but I find that sometimes they are more sober-minded about the things of God than, than we are today. And that's not true across the board, but in this instance, I think it's true. Recently rereading just through Calvin's, John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion in his section on the sacraments, which is the Lord's Supper and baptism. He says this, We have in the Lord's Supper 
another aid to our faith. And it's related to the preaching of the gospel. So he says, the key word there, it's an aid to our faith. It's not intended to go uh, to replace the preaching of the word. It's kind of supplemental to the preaching of the word. God speaks through the preaching of the word. That's his primary means, through the preaching of his spirit written word of God. And in the Lord's Supper, we have another aid to our faith. And then he goes on to say, God provides first for our ignorance and dullness, and then for our weakness. What Calvin is saying there is, the Lord's Supper is needed. It's needed for you and I. Because not because God's word is lacking, not because the preaching of the word of God is lacking in any way, but because we are needy. We are weak. We are, his word, ignorant, and at times can become dull when it comes to spiritual things. We may know the truth claims of the gospel. We may know great things about God, about the gospel, are we really effective in applying those things? Think back to Psalm 131 we were looking at in our prayer meeting this morning. Uh, we, we talked about we all know God is sovereign, but how effective are we in applying that consistently, faithfully, in the ups and downs and twists and turns of life? If, if you're like me, it, it may take you a while to get there. By God's grace, you'll get there, but it may not be your first instinct. We're sometimes dull and ignorant and dry, and weak. And like little children, we need all the help God can give us. <laughs> we need everything. He can give us to instruct us in our faith, to, to more firmly root us in our faith, so that we can live faithfully to Him. That's what Calvin says the Lord's Supper is. It's an aid to our faith, because God knows we're ignorant. We're weak. We're sometimes dull when it comes to spiritual things. And to quote the great reformer one more time, in the Lord's Supper, God, according to his infinite kindness, so tempers himself to our capacity that since we are creatures who always creep on the ground, we cleave to the flesh and do not think about or even conceive of anything spiritual, he condescends to lead us to himself by these earthly elements. That is massive. He, in kindness and in mercy, so aware that even as we gather together on a Lord's Day, we have been in the days leading up to this, in various respects, creeping on the ground, meaning flirting with the things of the world. We've been clinging to the things of the world, to the flesh. It's a battle to keep our eyes upon Jesus. So he condescends to us, giving us these earthly elements to lead us to himself, to lead us out of the dust, out of ourselves, to him, our one great hope. That's the intended benefit of the Lord's Supper. To know him, to find our hope in him, to cling to him. And I think the question I wrestle with in my own soul, and only you can wrestle with it in your own soul, is this. Is that really what we experience when we come to the Lord's table? 
Is that really what happens after we distribute? We pray, we eat. We distribute, we pray, we drink, we sing, we leave. As we leave, can we honestly say, I've been led to Almighty God. And as I leave here today, my soul is refreshed. As I leave here today, I walked in somewhat ignorant of the things of God, dull toward God, dry toward God, weak in my faith toward God, but I leave because of the elements, because of what they mean. I leave here having been led into the presence of God. The Lord's Supper is a gracious gift from a gracious God, a gracious Savior to help us in our weakness to better know God, to better know what it means to belong to God, to know His love for us, to know the faithfulness of our King. The very message we preach week after week after week after week in whatever text we're going through but as an aid to our faith, to give us something tangible to hold in our hands and to taste with our lips that we might be led more closely to God. That's what Christ was instituting here. Luke 22, beginning in verse 14. And when the hour came, he, that's Christ, reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And we'll pause right there. This is a very, very rich passage. I don't know that I've always held it as so. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But it's a very, very rich passage in which I think we really stand on holy ground as we look at it together, particularly verse 15. And he said to them, and the he there's Christ, he said to his apostles, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Let that resonate for just a minute. Who's saying it? Who's he saying it to? And what's about to happen to him? In light of all of those contextual clues, let it resonate in your heart that Jesus himself is emphasizing to his disciples, I've been waiting for this moment. I have been earnestly desiring this Passover. Keep in mind, this isn't Jesus' first Passover. This isn't his first Passover with his disciples. 
But this one is distinctively different from every other Passover he's ever participated in or ever participated in with his disciples. For in it, he's about to do something that has never, ever taken place in the almost 1,500 years of celebrating a Passover. He's about to transition it in a way that has never been thought of before, in a way that's never been done before. Therefore, he says, I have earnestly desired this Passover with you before my suffering. What's the significance? What is so earnest about this passage. And the word earnest means just a, an intense longing, a serious conviction. This is, this is a turning point in what's about to take place. So I want us to consider first, what did this event mean for Jesus? Again, we'll just break verse 15 apart into just kind of three different sections. First, he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover. Why is Jesus of Nazareth so earnest about this Passover? He's done it before. What's so significant? Well, we couldn't ask the disciples. They don't know. The disciples are clueless. They don't know. They don't fully understand what's taking place. They don't know what's about to happen. Now, that's not because Jesus hasn't tried to tell them. Jesus, especially in the days leading up to this, has been trying to prepare them for months and, 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 and months and months. And in fact, John's gospel tells us that every time Jesus tried to explain to his disciples what was about to take place, what must take place, his suffering, his crucifixion, his death, every time he tried to explain them to them, they would all walk away saying, uh-uh, we won't let it happen. They refused to listen. They refused to understand the significance of of what's about to take place. So why is Jesus so earnest about this? Uh, it has not yet resonated with the disciples, and that may be where we are this morning. Maybe even we think, I, I, we'll come up here and do it every week, but I don't know what for. I mean, I get it. Bread's the body, blood's the, or, or juice is the blood. But what, what's so significant? The disciples didn't know. Maybe we don't know, but Jesus fully knew. He fully understood what was about to happen. Jesus knew this about himself. He was born to die. He knew that in just a matter of hours from this moment, after sitting down to this Passover meal, in just a matter of hours, he's going to be suffering. He's going to be in excruciating pain. He's going to be beaten and scourged. He's going to be nailed to a cross in shame and humiliation and physical pain on the cross. And this is just a few hours away from this. And yet he looks at his disciples with all that on the horizon, all of that right here pressing down upon him. And he says this, I have earnestly desired this Passover with you. That boggles my mind. Because, let's think about it from this perspective. When tragic events happen to us, they often blindside us, right? When we get blindsided by things, by things that are painful to us, maybe the loss of a loved one, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a child, 
maybe some debilitating disease, maybe some accident, maybe loss of it. When something happens and it blindsides us, it's painful. And I don't know about you, I've made this comment. Man, if, if I just had some warning, if I could have just seen it coming, then I could have prepared for it. And then I would have been better suited for it. Maybe that's the case, but let's think about it another way. Imagine from a different direction. Would you really want to live with that tragic event knowing you're on a countdown clock <laughs> and that I'm a year away from this, I'm a month away from this, from losing this loved one, from losing whatever, I'm a week away from it. I'm a few days away, I'm a few hours away from it. I think anxiety would be increasing as you go. I don't know about being prepared for it. I know you'd probably be getting more and more frenetic with it. Well, that's how Jesus was. He wasn't blindsided by the cross. He knew it was coming. He lived with a conscious awareness of the cross, that, that the moment was coming. He understood fully, even as he's sitting down for this Passover, he is well aware that he is about to not just be crucified, but he in his sinless body is about to take on the unrestrained, almighty wrath of almighty God upon his flesh. And that's the, that's the burden. That's what is coming. That's what he's bearing for you and I, and he's carrying with him in isolation through his ministry. The wrath of God is coming. It's exactly what Noah said to those in his day when the flood, the wrath of God is coming, the wrath of God is coming. Jesus knew that well. The wrath of God is coming upon me. And we know that in the, the immediate time leading up to that, he's in the garden, he's sweating drops of blood. If there's any other way than this, than for me to take on your wrath upon my physical body, my sinless, I've never tasted of sin. I've never tasted of your displeasure. And now I'm going to take the unrestrained wrath of all that I've come to die for, for all of their sins, past, present, and future, kind of come together in what there's any other way. Let this cup pass from me. We don't know the gravity of what he was facing, but he knew it fully. And yet in just a few hours before that, he can say to his disciples, I have earnestly, eagerly, longingly desired to have this Passover meal with you. Christians, we have no understanding of how faithful Jesus is to us. None whatsoever. Again, going back to the previous illustration, imagine taking the worst thing that's ever happened to you. You get that in your mind. The worst pain, the worst agony. The, the, the just, you, you just lose all hope. You lose all strength. You don't want to get out of bed. You take that in your mind. You think about the worst thing that's ever happened to you, and imagine having to live with the ongoing dread of knowing it's coming. It's coming. That the hour is coming where you're going to have to bear that. And there's nothing you can do about it. We can say to ourselves, I'd like to prepare. There's no way to prepare for these types of losses and these kinds of pains. There is no preparation for that. That's what Jesus is at here. He bore the wrath of God for you and I. 
We were the enemies of God. He's dying for his disciples. He's going to take the wrath of God because of their sins. And yet he still says to them, I've desired to sit down and eat this with you. I'm about to go and take this on because of you. But right now, I desire to sit down earnestly and partake of this with you. My goodness, the faithfulness of Christ for those he's come to die for. We see it on display here. The context of what he's about to go through makes his words here all the more staggering. This that he's about to institute, the Lord's Supper, must be more significant and more beneficial than even on our best day we've ever understood. But it doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say, I've earnestly desired to eat this meal. He says, I've earnestly desired to eat this meal, this Passover, with you. And I've already kind of bled into this section, but with you. Who's he talking to? He's talking to one of his disciples who's already begun the process of betraying him. And he knows who that disciple is. He knows exactly how this is going down. He's already washed this disciple's feet. He knows who this is, and yet still he says in the company of this disciple, I've earnestly desire to eat this meal with you. He knows Peter. Peter's in this company of apostles. He knows full well. Peter is one of those who has protested. No, I'm not going to let that happen to you. No, 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 I'm going to stay with you through thick and thin. But Christ knows. Christ has already told him, Peter, you're going to deny me. Not just once, not just three times you're going to deny me. No, 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 Lord, the rest may abandon you, but not me. Yeah, three times, Peter. And yet Jesus looks at Peter knowing that in his own hour of need, Peter's going to abandon him. He says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you, Peter. The book of Matthew tells us it's not just Judas, it's not just Peter. Matthew's gospel plays out for us, everyone in that room, all of the apostles in the upper room that night, every last one of them absolutely abandoned Jesus in his hour of need. And to this company, he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Sometimes, I fear we might minimize the benefit of the Lord's Supper for us. And that could be one, because as Calvin said, maybe we're ignorant of it. Maybe we're dull. Maybe we're dry. That, that would be one reason we, we minimize the benefit of the Lord's Supper. But another reason that we might minimize the benefit is we just don't feel worthy to come. Now, we're familiar with Paul's warning in Corinthians to make sure we come in a manner worthy of the Lord. That doesn't mean you come perfect. Nobody can come perfect. On this night, if, if you had to be perfect to partake, Nobody could have partaken. The fact is, Jesus knows our hearts. Just like he knew what was going on with Judas, Judas wasn't doing anything behind Jesus' back. Just like Jesus knew Peter, and just like Jesus knew all the other apostles, and what was stirring in their souls, the fear, the anxiety, that they were going to abandon him, so too Jesus knows our hearts. 
Please, and this is where, even as I was working, we've got to make sure we have to keep Paul's warning in place. We do want to make sure we come in a worthy manner, but we need to understand. That doesn't mean you have to be perfect. Christ knows the sin that we've even brought into this room with us this morning. And please don't be one who sits there and says, uh, I don't know who you're talking about. I didn't bring sin in here this morning. If you're here, you brought sin in with you just like I did. We've tried to cover it, mask it. We try to make it look, but Christ knows. He knows all that we bear, that the things that would shame us and humiliate us if others were to know. Christ knows. He knows every corner of our heart. Just like he knew the disciples in that upper room. And yet he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. This Passover. Not the one we did last year or the year before that or any of those. This one is going to be different. I've earnestly desired. I'm about to flip this thing on its head. And I've earnestly with you desired this. think we know how faithful Christ is to us. I'll use the word Christ's love for us. I don't mean that in an emotional ooey gooey Christ, oh I love you so much. I mean love is your, his faithfulness to us. His choice in eternity past to be faithful to us when we are not faithful to him. That's what we're seeing here in the institution of the Lord's Supper. Christ knows us and yet he says, I desire earnestly this fellowship with you, my children. But there's one other aspect of this, verse 15. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover. It's going to be different. With you, and I know who you are, I know what you're doing, I know what you got hidden in your heart, before I suffer. Before I suffer. And this... This is the kindness of our king. Because here Jesus is saying, and it, it, I feel so impotent even to try to put words in Jesus' mouth here in this moment, but this is ultimately what you, I know what's coming. I know what's about to happen to me. I know I'm going to be nailed to a cross. I know I'm going to endure, uh, endure all kinds of physical anguish. I know what's about to happen. The wrath of God poured out upon me. It's not an accident. I won't be a victim. The Romans haven't defeated me. I'm not under the control of the chief priests and the scribes or Pilate or the, the government authorities. I know what's about to happen. No one's taking my life from me. I'm giving it. I'm giving it, I'm about to suffer, but I earnestly desire to eat this meal with you because it's not for me, it's for you. I earnestly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer because you're about to see something. And you need to understand what's happening here. You need to understand the gravity of what's taking place before I suffer. 
so that when you see it and you're running all over the place and you're scrambling and you're hiding in the upper room in days to come, at some point, by the Holy Spirit's help, it'll click. In the upper room, the meal we had, he said this. This is what happened. It's connecting. The reality of what happened there is not what we thought it was. But it is the plans and purposes of God. In kindness here, even with all that Jesus is about to endure, beyond anything we can comprehend, he says, I need to prepare your hearts for what's about to happen. Because you're going to be dazed, you're going to be confused, you're going to be scared. You're going to think, I wasn't who I claimed to be. You're going to be downcast, you're going to lose all hope, right? And we see that in the days after Jesus' death, right? We see the two on the road to Emmaus. They're walking around, the resurrected Jesus comes, and they're downcast. What's wrong? And they say to him, haven't you heard? Jesus of Nazareth, he's been crucified. We had hoped he was the Messiah. We had hoped, but he's dead. And you see... Jesus knows the struggle that's about to ensue. And so he wants to prepare their hearts. And the meal is what Calvin said, as an aid to our faith, to help us in our weakness. When we are downcast, when we are weak, go back to Psalm 131. When we are overwhelmed, when life has taken these ups and downs and twists and turns and things are not what we thought they were going to be, the supper is an aid to our faith to help us in our weakness, to help us in our dullness, to help us in our ignorance. Because in those moments, we're not thinking right. We're not thinking biblically. We're not thinking Jesus on his throne. And the meal is an aid to the preaching of the word to help us look to Jesus, to his kingship and his reign, to see he's on the throne. Think Revelation, what we're looking at. That one on the throne God is using the, the strategies of Satan. He's using the betrayal of Judas. He's, he's using the denials of Peter. He's using the abandonment of his apostles, the brutality of the Romans. He's using it all for his glory. God is accomplishing something in what takes place upon the cross. Jesus knew he was born to die. He was born to suffer the wrath of God as a substitute in the place of those he came to save. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't something God overlooked. Satan didn't win that day. At the cross, this was the unfolding of a very loving plan of God from before the foundation of the world for his glory, to redeem a people for him by grace. And the cross is that moment where it happens. That's why this Passover is so significant. Because all that Old Testament revelation has been telling us about a coming Messiah who will crush the head of a serpent, it's about to happen. And it's this Passover that's going to now become the fulfillment of what every other Passover was intended to be, to point us to Jesus. You see, the only way for Peter and the other apostles, and you and I, for our sins against this God to be forgiven, is if somebody comes and pays the price for us, right? I think we know that. 
Someone's got to come and pay. Either we pay the penalty, the wages of sin is death, or someone has to come and pay that price for us. They have to die for us. One or the other. God is holy, and he will not let his glory be mocked. Someone will pay the price, either us or one other perfect sacrifice in our place. And Jesus said to the Father in eternity past, I will be that substitute. Think about that for a moment. That shame you carry. That disgrace, that sin, that humiliation you don't want anybody to know about. We all have it. Christ said to the Father, I'll bear that sin for them. I'll pay the price. I'll pay the penalty for them. He willingly gave himself by grace as a sacrifice for you and I. Nobody made him do it. It was his desire for the glory of the Father, for his own exaltation. It was his desire to do this. And so before he suffers, verse 15, here in this Passover, he provides this meal as a means of grace to open their eyes. He wants them to know before he suffers, ahead of time. This is what the cross is all about. This is what, when you see me pour out my blood, this is what it's about. Your suffering, your shame, your guilt, your sin. And that is what makes verses 19 and 20 so significant. Verse 15, I have earnestly desired to partake of this Passover with you before I suffer. So, when it comes to the time in the Passover meal for the authority figure, the father, to stand up and make the proclamations that have been made at every other Passover, Jesus stands up and he says something that no father has ever said at any Passover ever before. Not for 1,500 years. This Passover, it starts just like every other. He takes a loaf of bread. He breaks it. He distributes it. All that is right up to plan. This Passover, though, this is where it turns. Because now he utters words never uttered before, and he says, and I quote, this is my body given That's the significance of this Passover with these disciples before he suffers. This bread that we've just torn and you're eating, this is my body given for you. Now, we're not going to take the time to go into all the. Is he saying that the bread becomes his body? No. That's not what this is about. In Passover meals, the father would stand, break the bread, distribute it, and say these words. This is the bread of the affliction of my people in the wilderness. It was a very strategic system they had in place. He would distribute the bread and say, this is the bread of the affliction of my people in the wilderness. What's he talking about? It's symbolic. Right? We're familiar with symbolism, right? We're, it's, it's a heavy topic right now. The bread is symbolic. 
Is he saying that the bread that they're eating is the bread from the wilderness for some 1,500 years ago? Thank goodness, no. He's saying it's symbolic of what? That time in the wilderness when God brought our people out of Egypt and preserved them in the wilderness by grace. He provided bread for them, manna from heaven. And the Passover is remembrance of not only the Passover lamb going back to Egypt, but the bread that was provided to them once they came out of Egypt. He sustained them by grace. He provided for his children in the wilderness. And so during the Passover meal, when they ate the bread, it was symbolic of that bread that God had provided. But now, do you see Jesus comes in and says something totally, radically different? This is not the bread of the affliction of my people in the wilderness. He says, this is my body given for you. My body. It would have brought to mind the imagery of uh, the sacrificial system. The sacrificing, the killing of an animal, the spilling of blood as a way to, for the forgiveness of sins. You transfer your sins onto the animal and, and that animal slaughtered. It bleeds to death and there's forgiveness of sins. But even the New Testament tells us the blood of bulls and goats doesn't bring the forgiveness of sins. Only Christ does that, his body and his blood. And when he says, this is my body, this is God's provision to you for life eternal. Life with God. To be led to Him. That the veil may be torn away, that you may have access to God. This is my body given to you. And then He goes on to say, and this is my blood. My blood that is poured out. Just as with the bread, the blood is wine does not turn into blood. The wine is symbolic of the blood of Jesus Christ. There at the cross, he wants them to understand what's taking place there. Just as in the Old Testament, we read in verse 20, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What was the old covenant? It goes all the way back to Moses, the law that was given, right? There at, at Mount Sinai. I'm, I will be your God, you will be my people. And they said what? All that you have said we will do. And then God provides the law, right? The Ten Commandments and the law. And how does Moses ratify that covenant? God says, I will be your God, you will be my people. They say, all that you say we will do, we will be your people. How does Moses ratify that? Remember, he sprinkles blood. He pours out blood in order to show that they agree to the terms of the covenant. Problem was, what? They couldn't keep the terms. In a matter of moments, they're already sinning against their God. So the old covenant really was, it, it laid the foundation for the need for the new. They don't need a new law. They need a new heart. Their problem is they can't hear, do what the king says to do. So in, the, in Jeremiah, we're told that God in grace establishes a new covenant. A new covenant where he will bring in a new heart 
The old covenant hinged upon them obeying. The new covenant is, I will do for you what you can't do for yourself. I'm going to take out your heart of disobedience. I'm going to give you a heart that will love me. You're not going to be perfect, but it will love me. It will desire me. It will hunger to obey me and thirst for me. It will happen. And Jesus here is saying that new covenant, you can go look at it in Jeremiah 31, that new covenant is ratified by my blood. The old one was ratified by the blood of Moses' blood, pouring it and sprinkling it. This one is ratified by my blood on the cross. I will be your God. You, Peter, disciples who are going to abandon, I know you, I know your struggles, I know your shame, your humiliation, your guilt. By grace, you will be my people. And I will be your God. This is the institution of the Lord's Supper. To bring us in our weakness, in our struggles, in our sinfulness. Now, we don't want to come unworthy. I, sometimes I make the comment, you don't have to be perfect to come. You just can't come holding the hands of Satan. And I hope we, we understand the difference there. There's one thing to, to know we've got sin in our hearts. We're wrestling with it. We're dealing with it. We've confessed it. We're repenting of it. Versus coming, I'm a sinner, and I, I completely plan to continue doing so. I have no intention of ceasing. I have no intention of confessing and repenting and returning to my king. That's what Paul's warning of. That person, whoa. Whoa, whoa, to make a mockery of what Jesus did with his body and blood upon the cross to come and to partake of his covenant faithfulness to you and you come to him, I have no intention of honoring you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, that's, that's a dangerous position to take. But as we come back to Calvin's words, in our weakness, in our dullness, in our ignorance, we come I just need to be refreshed. I need to know God's faithfulness to me, even when I'm not perfectly faithful to Him. That's where the, the supper becomes an aid to our faith. That we can leave here today, having confessed our sins, having repented, having fellowship with our crucified and risen King who gave His body, who poured out His blood as a, uh, a stamp on His new covenant faithfulness to us. He will be our God. We will be his people by grace. Not based upon our obedience, but by grace. And we leave here today. Maybe you came in today struggling to believe God's love for you. That God could love you after you've blown it again this week. And you've done it again, over and over and over again. I don't want to read too much into it. I couldn't help but notice much like you did. There wasn't much participation in prayer this morning. Now that may have been you were wrestling in your own soul with Psalm 131, or was it there's something in your soul that you just weren't in the right place to fellowship with your God? I can't answer that. Only you can. I think we all acknowledge there was a, a lengthy silence, which we're not afraid of. That's okay. It happens. But why would the people of God have a difficulty fellowshipping with their king? Did you come in this morning weak? And dull, it happens to us. It happens to me. The 
table as an aid to our faith to strengthen us. We can't afford to be prayerless out there this week. That's a means of grace. What a wonderful opportunity our Lord has given to us. He expects that we benefit from what we do on the first Sunday of every month. He expects that we benefit from participation in it. This is not just for us to admire. This is not just for us, well, it's that time of the month to come and come and have the Lord's Supper. He intends it to be a time of intense fellowship and supplement to the Word of God, the preaching of the Word of God, a time of fellowship with Him. And I close with this. We read both in Matthew, particularly in Matthew's Gospel about the Lord's Supper, When Jesus took the bread, he blessed it. When he took the juice, he blessed it. That is, he gave thanks for it. Now, it's one thing to just, Lord, we thank you for this. But I think there was more going on there. The Lord's Supper really is about us saying to King Jesus, who as he took on the wrath of God, for you and I declared I earnestly desire this fellowship with you, this Passover with you. Before I suffer, for you and I, after we, I suffer, because I want you to understand what the cross was. I want you to benefit from the cross. I want you to be nourished. I want you to be filled. I want you to be strengthened. I want your faith to be aided by the cross. It's appropriate for us from the bottom of our hearts. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you put on flesh. You didn't have to. Thank you that you lived a life of perfection to the glory of God in every thought, every word, every action, every attitude. You honored God in everything, and I haven't done it in any one capacity of my life for longer than a millisecond, and even that may be overly generous. You've done what I could never do apart from your grace. You rescued me. You delivered me. You brought me out of that miry pit. You gave me a new heart. You gave me new eyes to see. You enabled me to see Christ. I'd heard about Him my whole life. I thought He was a fictional character. I thought these people were crazy who talked about loving Jesus, but now I see. My heart believes it. You gave me this extraordinary thing. And Jesus, thank You. Thank You for the cross. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for the book of Revelation, your ongoing kingship over all things that helps me navigate this life. And thank you for the supper that I can hold in my hands and taste with my lips these symbolic things that help me to know your sacrifice. You took on the wrath of God for me. Jesus, thank you.